This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, we go to town for festival. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the weekly sci-fi critique philosophy whatever we feel like show i am gepwin and i am joined as always by my good friend dr Izix. hi and this week we watched something yes it was a it was, star trek it was episode. on yeah it was on tv it had the star trek characters in it mm-hmm. and i'm not sure i could tell you that much more <laughs> well i think they're uh, wearing some sort of uh, period costumes of some sort it looked like they're from the 1800s yeah, they they beamed down to a planet, and they didn't just show up in their uniforms. Yeah. Who would have thunk? It's kind of weird. It's almost like they're in disguise or undercover or, I don't know, cosplaying. Yeah, they, they didn't stay undercover for very long, but, nah. So, let me just, I, I, I realized a bit ago when I was doing some editing that I I, I will sometimes go for a full like five minutes before I say the title of an episode. <laughs> so the, this is Return of the Archons. Yes. The Archons is, seem like important people. Yeah, it's it's nonsensical. I, I had to look it up because I knew Archons sounded familiar. They were a governing body in Athens mm-hmm. in ancient Greece. And they were, they were this this episode has nothing to do with that. Yeah, it's just it's just a name that seemed kind of awesome, so they used it. Yeah, it is a really cool name. Yeah, yeah it's uh, I think there's maybe something from like I don't know, um, Starcraft is involved there with like called an Archon, perhaps. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> and and a bunch of things basically. Maybe that's Archon or, or yeah, something similar to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week's uh, show is a story by Gene Roddenberry. <gasps> Oh hi! Yeah, I'm I'm noticing. But every time we have a story by Gene Roddenberry, it makes no sense. Yep. <laughs> at all. Uh, there, there was someone who did the uh, the actual uh, writing of the script, uh, the teleplay. But uh, you know, uh, Gene Bar- Gene Roddenberry is uh, behind this this one from the core. Yeah, and with the amount he rewrote stuff. Apparently there was some controversy on this episode where he wasn't allowed full credit due to some kind of writer's guild thing also. So I don't know how that works. That's some kind of weird intra-industry stuff that I'm not not very well versed in. Uh, I think uh, this is our first uh, opportunity to use this phrase here. If you're a Screenwriters Guild of America member, uh, write the show. <laughs> let us know what's up. <laughs> oh, we do have a... We've got an innumerable amount of guest stars this week. Oh, yes, yes. A whole pile of them. Yeah. And some, and some of them actually like, got the names for my notes here properly. And the other ones I had to look up. <laughs> like one guy just called him dad the entire time I was writing my notes out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. They, the names are so immaterial. And so stupid. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have Harry Towns as Rager. Yes. R E G E R Rager. Yes. I, I believe he's the one I called Dad. Yeah, he's the dad. <laughs> We've got uh, Torin Thatcher as Marplon. 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 That I don't remember who that one was actually. <laughs> I d- I don't think I have it in my notes, but like. They needed to be more careful in these names because at one point, Regar runs up and says, it's the Archon, Marplon. 
Marplon Archon, it's the Marcon. I'll what? What? Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and most of these other ones don't exactly show up very much. Yeah, there's uh, the girl. I think yeah. uh, Tula was it. Tula, played by mm-hmm. uh, Brioni uh, Farrell, Farrell, Brioni Farrell, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Captain Farrell. She's basically the only other one that really shows up for very much. There's like first and second lawgiver, mm-hmm. <laughs> played by Sid Hag Haig, uh, and then after that they don't really show up uh, enough. So, <laughs> well, well, there's like you know, the, the one guy and the other dude and the the guy that's kind of mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I guess there is uh, an un un Wikipedia un Wikipediaable. Uh, Charles McCallendry as uh, Landrew. Oh, yes. The, like, uh, leader of this weird planet. McCooley? Hmm. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah, no one does. And it's not on Wikipedia. (laughs) I can't even get a guide. I do apologize. I realize that I read names wrong a lot. It's like this weird mix of, of a bad name memory and dyslexia hitting each other in a very awkward way. So I do apologize. It's not that I don't care about people's names. They're just the hardest thing in the world for me to pronounce. Uh, no, no worries. I knew a guy uh, in, in college who, you know, like sometime during the first month that we like had we knew each other, he started calling me Pete for some reason. Now I'm not named Pete or Peter. So that was a little weird, <laughs> but he made it into mnemonic because yeah, I eat a lot of pizza, you know, you know and uh, I enjoy it. And it was one of the things I was always there at the uh, at the dining hall. So he called me Pizza Pete. Ah, this is <laughs> like the danger of mnemonic devices. Okay, get stuck with a nickname. <laughs> let's let's try to actually talk about the episode before we hit okay. the first ten minutes here. All right. Though so, synopsis, we open on an old timey street. Where two men in old-timey clothes are running. One of them falls, and we see that this is actually a pair of Starfleet officers, Sulu and another dude. So we find out later his name is O'Neill. Yes. Sulu calls for a beam-out as they are surrounded by several robed men waving staves. Yes, so obviously they're being stalked by wizards. Yes, they they (laughs) are just, they're like red-robed wizards. I guess this might be from the Adventure Zone. (laughs) Slowly approaching, menacingly. Sulu's companion decides to make a run for it, but Sulu stays still to be beamed up, but not before he is touched by one of the staffs that the weird dudes in robes are holding, and he gets this really kind of blissed out look before he's beamed up to the ship. It's like, poke, and then, whoa, that was was quite an experience, man. (laughs) When he arrives, Sulu is just blissed out on the universe. Yes. Yeah, he's like just so high on life, man, dude. Yeah, he has no idea what's going on. He mentions paradise a few times, says the word Landrew, and yeah, we cut to credits. There's also some mention about archons, but it's it's incomprehensible what he's talking about. Yeah, it's com- it's like the worst written drug trip, basically. Yep. <laughs> Maybe explain some of this episode. Captain's log: the Enterprise is in orbit around planet Beta Three. Just you're, you're, this is a weird this is a weird naming convention we're using yeah. here. 
Didn't we already run into a beta something or other planet at one point? Maybe. So the, I guess that means that they're in the same star system. Hmm. If it's beta yeah. one, if it's beta whatever and beta three. Yeah, wasn't there like a beta Tagni and something? They they just love beta. Well, if there's like you know uh, you know a beta and then another name that actually you know fits fairly well with uh, you know star naming conventions, but if it's just beta and that's it, then it seems to imply that that's a singular system there. Hmm. Hey, they are in search of a ship, the Archon, that disappeared here a hundred years ago. Cool. Which- Fine, but that's a long time to send a rescue party or a search party. Yes. Well, maybe it's like, yeah, we we lost them. We all just assume they're all dead because we didn't manage to get out that way for 20 years. And now it's like 80 years after that, and we only got around to like carrying again. Yep. <laughs> Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and a bunch of randoms beam down to the planet because they need to search for their missing man, O'Neill. Mm-hmm. This time they are not in full uniforms, but are wearing sort of 18-something period clothing. It's like they're trying to blend in or something. It's, this is pretty weird. Yeah, who knew? Hmm. Maybe there's some sort of, I don't know, a, a rule or law they're trying to follow to uh, try to like be inconspicuous. If there is, I'm sure it's not very important. Yes. <laughs> the crew encounters several people who are all walking around very slowly and smiling inanely. They're approached by a man who greets them with joy to you, friends. Oh, joy to you too, Gepwin. He recognizes them as strangers and asks if they are there for the festival that starts in about 10 minutes. Well, this seems like a delightful thing. You know, let's learn more about this festival. Oh, this festival. It says that they'll need a place to stay and recommends a house around the corner. A young woman walks up. This is Tolia. And she is coincidentally the daughter of the man whose house they just told them to go to. Oh, that's very useful. It's a small town situation going on here. I think everything's going to be just swell. Before they can get any more information, the clock strikes six and everyone just hits the purge. Yes, just everyone just freaks out and suddenly it's like pure chaos and people are throwing, they're punching, they're they're grabbing each other, they're doing all sorts of unfortunate things to each other. It's, yeah. it's just pure insanity. They're making out, they're throwing rocks through windows, uh, mostly that's all we see. Yeah. There's a lot of making out. <laughs> yes, and, and some of it's like done in silhouette, so it's like maybe trying to employ much more than, you know, imply much more than that, but it's you know, not directly shown. Yeah. Kirk and company run into the house where they find three older men. One of them, Hackam, is deeply suspicious of these new people who seem to not want to participate in the purge situation that they've got going on. Well, Hackam, how how about you just chill out, man? Those people don't want to get killed, right? He keeps referring to something called lawbringers and how they're going to be upset. The other two men are more sympathetic. And one of them makes a joke about how the lawbringers should already know that these men are here because the lawbringers know all. And this upsets Hakim, who runs off. Hakim seems just just all sorts of rude in all of this here. In fact, uh, I think I referenced him in my original notes as mean guy. Yeah, Hakim <laughs> has no chill. Yes. It's like, oh, you, you insult the lawgivers? I'm going to go tell on you. Meh. The crew attempts to warn Reger, who owns this house, that his daughter is in danger, but he just keeps saying that this is all the will of Landrew. Well, okay then. Um, can we go talk to Landrew? He seems like he knows what's up. Maybe. We hope so at some point, because so far none of this makes sense. Yes. <laughs> the crew take the room that is being offered and hold up there for the night. 
The next day, the clock strikes six again, and everyone immediately goes from full-on making out throwing things to wandering around calmly. Yeah, so well, they're back on the bliss again, apparently. They hear crying outside, and it turns out to be Tolia. She is up in a ripped dress and is very upset about something we never find out about. I think she probably had a bad time at festival, honestly. Yeah, that, that's what they seem to be implying, but it makes no sense. Well, she, she also looks kind of battered and bruised, so uh, she was probably at least hit a few times. Yeah. McCoy takes her away and sedates her. She's now done with, and we can forget about her and the festival because they are never mentioned again for the rest of the episode. And just sort of a introduction to the idea that there's something really weird going on on this planet. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Rager keeps going on about Landru and how maybe the crew are more archons. But before okay. anyone can explain what in the world is going on, two of the men with robes and staves enter with Hackam. Oh, hello, wizard friends. Are you here to send us on a quest? Nope, they're here to shoot people with sticks. Oh, oh okay. Akam points out the third man, Tamar, and says that that is the man who made fun of the lawgivers. Oh, oh no. Who yeah. cares? <laughs> well, apparently someone does. The, the lawgiver points his staff at the man and it kills him. Well, that's kind of rude. They tell Kirk and company that they need to come with them to be absorbed. Kirk says no, and the lawgivers are confused. Yes, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Hackam guy is like, you know, he's like, they're not of the body. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about the body in this, and it's... Yes. Ugh, it's not written well. <laughs> Spock thinks that Kirk planned saying no, and he asks how he knew that that would be a useful defense. Yes, because these uh, lawgivers are just like completely flabbergasted. Yeah, they're completely out of it. (laughs) Kirk says everything he has seen suggests a compulsive involuntary stimulus effect, which I think are the three longest words we've ever heard out of Kirk. (laughs) Well, maybe he's uh, picked up a thesaurus recently. Yeah, so he basically is saying that everything he's seen suggests that there's some sort of direct control. So saying no to a request would confuse whatever's happening. But this doesn't explain the existence of a law-keeping enforcement police class. Yeah. If there's never any direct confrontation, why do you need a police-like entity? Yes. You know, if everything's a you know, perfect system, why do you, do you need uh, your agents of uh, you know uh, control there? Yeah. This, this makes Anderson. no sense at all. So... Spock needs to stop giving Kirk credit for things. Yes. (laughs) Kirk grabs one of the lawgiver's sticks and finds that it's just a hollow tube. Well, it must be a magical hollow tube. Yeah, they are just wizards. Rager tells them that they have to leave, and they run out past the still very confused lawbringers. Or givers. I can't remember which one it was now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it doesn't really matter. They're, they're blue screened. It's, it's fine. On the way out, they pass all of the destruction from the night before, and they're greeted by a man that one of the crew members identifies as the man who attacked Regger's daughter. But Regger says that that wasn't him. It was Landrew and hurries them away. Oh. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah, I suppose. Eh? <laughs> 
Before they get yes. very far, everyone on the street stops, picks up random weaponry that's lying around, and starts moving towards the group like slow zombie people. Uh, I think the appropriate phrase is here is, um, stop, hammer time. <laughs> <laughs> they run away into an alley where they just happen to trip over O'Neill. Oh, uh, look at that. It's no Neil. Yeah, that was easy. Kirk orders them to bring him, even though Reger says that bringing him will let Landru find them. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Um, maybe we should, like, I don't know, just leave this planet and never come back. Yeah, that could be an idea now that they've got everyone. They use their phasers to stun their way out of this alley and wind up in some old stone basement thing. Yeah, so just suddenly we're at a castle site. Once there, Reger explains that he is part of a resistance that operates in little cells of three people. The man who was killed was one, and Reger did not know who the other was, which is a weirdly ineffective group of three. <laughs> so you're supposed to like have three people like a you know like a, like a resistance cell here, and that usually implies that you know more than one person. You 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 have you have the one person on your left, the one person on your right, and they might know other people, but you don't know those other people yourself. Yeah, th this is a this is a kind of classical resistance organizational structure of like you you know two people and then they know two people, but you you would still know two people. Like yes. maybe you don't know who the other guy's contact was. Like he'd know you and one other person, but you wouldn't necessarily consider that other person your group of three. So it's just, I don't know. It's not described well. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, it's described in a kind of counterproductive fashion. Yes. Like everything to do with the resistance. Yes. <laughs> Kirk asks about the Archons. And Reger explains that they resisted the will of Landru and that he pulled them from the skies. Oh, so they crashed and died. Cool. Yeah. All of a sudden, Kirk's like, oh, dang, I still have a ship in orbit and checks with the Enterprise. <laughs> Scotty confirms that the ship is indeed under attack from heat rays from the planet and that they are about to fall out of orbit like they... They just cannot keep an orbit on this nope. show. <laughs> They're going to crash in about 12 hours and uh, everyone's going to die. Um, Captain, uh, back to you. Yep. Thus then, Landy appears. Hi, Landrew. As they see through a sort of see-through projection. A very he crappy makes a, hologram. Yeah, it's a really crummy hologram. He makes a speech about how Kirk and company are an infection that has come to destroy them. And then the sound starts and everyone just passes out. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Landrew has, like, robes and crazy hair, and he just kind of uh, pontificates and is very slow about it. Yeah, he actually looks a little bit like the uh, collector, like the master dude from uh, from the Thor movie, um, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the exact name. Oh, yeah, that, that dude, yes. <laughs> they wake up in a prison that is just the basement set they were just in with some stuff moved around. Yes, so yeah. it was very confusing. I was like, why are they in the same place? Oh, they're not. Okay. <laughs> well, they knocked about and then they locked the door, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they could have just locked the door, but uh, not as dramatic, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, I think it, we should also point out that there's a captain's log at this point. When Kirk's trapped in a prison cell, only just now waking up, and there was some communication issues to the ship. So it's like, when is he making this log? Yeah, well, <laughs> they're weirdly inconsistent with it, but 
it's like the captain's logs are always supposed to be like they like paperwork they filled in after the fact <laughs> even though some of them are recorded at the time and some of them aren't and they're a little inconsistent with it at this point yes and this one seemed you know seemed to be sort of like it was being uh, done at the time as far as like the tents and such but it's still like what <laughs> yeah it's odd not a well-written episode nope <laughs> Kirk and Spock take stock of the situation. Their weapons are missing. Also, McCoy is missing. A lawbringer comes in soon with McCoy, who is now also all creepified. Well, at least he's not going to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, so racist anymore. So I know he like he didn't have any lines before, and now he's not racist. It's like they fixed him. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Kirk can't even like slap McCoy out of it. He tries. Well, I guess you know you're not going to be mean anymore. But that was for all those times you were mean before, McCoy. I guess <laughs> the lawbringer comes back and demands Kirk come with him. Kirk says no, but they've fixed this direct refusal issue they were having, and the lawbringer just says he's going to kill him. Well, I guess they've figured out their uh, firmware upgrades. Yeah. Kirk is taken to a room with more futuristic-looking architecture than anything we've seen thus far. Mm -hmm. where he is attached to a wall for absorption. A oh, bald man, in, like identified as Marplon, enters and takes the controls. He turns on the machine and we cut back to the prison where Spock is trying to reach McCoy through possibly a mind meld. It's unclear. Uh, but McCoy is apparently under too powerful of control for Spock to reach. So uh, I guess it's back to slapping then. Uh, to get yeah. out of the control? No, just to slap him. A lawbringer takes Spock to the absorption chamber, where Kirk is now all blissed out on the universe. Oh, sweet. You know, Kirk's going to be nice, too. Everything's turning up great. <laughs> yeah, they, they just all improve. <laughs> Spock is attached to the wall, but Marplon explains that the machine is harmless because he is the secret third member of the resistance cell. Dun, dun, dun! He says that he arrived too late to save McCoy, but that Kirk and Spock are fine, but they just need to pretend to be all blissed. So, uh, Spock, it's your uh, opportunity to uh, act as anything other than a Vulcan. Uh-oh. Hey. Back in prison, Kirk, Spock, Rhaegar, and Marplon start to plan an escape. Kirk wants to kill Landru. Spock asks about the Prime Directive, which would keep them from interfering with things. But Kirk says that that only counts for cultures that they feel are developing okay. <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. Well, Kirk. this is the thing. So like we're bringing we're bringing a future knowledge of the prime directive as it's explained true. later on and especially ex expanded on a lot in Next Generation and further out in the in the Star Trek series. This is the first time they've ever mentioned the Prime Directive of Non-Interference. Mm -hmm. So basically they say, what about this rule you've never heard of? And Kirk says, let's just ignore it. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> we just made it up anyway, so I guess, it, you know, uh, ignoring it's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it still sort of, you know, implies that it's like an important thing. That's it's called the Prime Directive as opposed to Directive 12 or something like that, which kind of means it's one of those big things that you need to really make sure you know what you're doing when it, when it comes to it comes to things involving it. Also, he has this little thing of like that applies to to developing like thriving cultures. And he's like, this doesn't look like one to me. 
It's like, but you you have interacted with this culture for all of thirty minutes at this point. Yes. So, <laughs> yep. quick to judge. Yeah, a little bit, and uh, I, I guess uh, you know once again going to the, back to the foreknowledge. You know, there's still the, you know, once you get past a certain level of uh, technological uh, capability, you know, the uh, constraints of the Prime Directive do break down. And so, you know, Kurt, this would have been, an, you know, an opportunity to sort of talk about that. It's like, well, normally this would be the case, but, you know, and, you know, they obviously have some sort of advanced technology and thus the Prime Directive doesn't necessarily come into play. But they don't decide to world build that way, decide to just sort of have this thing and they sort of ignore it. Yeah, well, they haven't world built it at all. They just mention it yes. and then it does nothing. So it arguably <laughs> exactly. so, was pointless. Exactly. <laughs> you had an opportunity to make something awesome that would be paying off so much later, but you didn't do anything with it. Yeah. <sighs> While they plan, McCoy creepily keeps staring at them until he realizes that they aren't under the direct control and freaks out. Oh no! McCoy's gone all mean again. Kirk <sighs> knocks him out and Spock takes out the Lawbringers by punching them, which Kirk remarks on now as like, oh, that was what happened to your civilized combat. And <laughs> considers it so important that I saw an interview with Shatner from like 20 years after this, where he again mentions that Spock hits someone in this scene. Just a, a memorable moment, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, Spock hitting someone in this one scene is so important that they are like, they're still raving about it like years later. Well, maybe in universe, Spock actually tried to like, uh, neck pinched McCoy while uh, you know Kirk was out of the room and it just didn't work or something like that. So he's like, "Nope, can't do the normal stuff." So I got to go uh, full fist here. <laughs> I- I'm going to pretend that's what happened. <laughs> Kirk asks Reger and Marplon, such a stupid name, to take him to wherever he can find Landru. But now that they can actually do things, the Resistance members don't want it anymore. Yes. <laughs> They all kind of break down crying a little bit. Yeah, we do get a little bit more uh, exposition about what Landrew was up to and what's all going on, of course. But there's like, it's all sort of coached to this, you know, well, this is why maybe we shouldn't be resisting sort of stuff. Yeah. Kirk just tells them tough and has them take them to the audience chamber where the projection of Landrew appears again. Ah, oh, sweet. The hologram's back. Kirk is not having any of this hologram junk and blasts a hole in the wall to reveal a really big computer. Oh, who, who would have expected that there was a computer behind all of this? Yeah. <laughs> so, as it turns out, there was a dude named Landrew. I'm sure for, for his sins, I guess. He did something <laughs> that saved the planet from war and other bad stuff happening about 6,000 years ago. He then programmed this computer in order to carry on his legacy after he died. But Kirk says that the computer may have all of Landru's knowledge, but it doesn't have his soul and is therefore bad. It lacks wisdom, and therefore it is evil, well, I guess. He says wisdom a few times, but he also yeah. says soul. He's like equating the two Yes, in an um, interesting, that's, weird way. That doesn't necessarily follow Kirk, sorry. Mm-hmm. The land pewter says <laughs> that keeping everyone safe is its prime directive. But Kirk goes, oh. ah, you aren't keeping everyone safe. And the computer goes, oh, no, help, 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 and explodes. 
<laughs> but you but you are a danger to everybody. You are harming the body. Oh, oh, really? I'm going to suddenly believe you person who just came from this, you know, you know, outer space to this planet and has been disrupting all my works. I guess I'll believe you and then follow your chain of logic and now I am dead. Yeah, it wasn't even logic. Just like, <laughs> but what if you're hurting people? It's like, oh darn, I didn't think of that. <laughs> I'm going to think so hard about it, I'm going to implode. It's a Babelfish situation. <laughs> the Lawbringers come in and are really freaked out because for the first time in their lives, they are not under direct control from the computer. The Resistance is also freaking out because they just killed their planet's god leader. And Kurt goes, <laughs> all right, you can take it from here. Good luck, guys. Thumbs up. Um... You're now a culture we can't interfere with anymore because you're developing, I guess. <laughs> yep. Back on the ship, Kirk says that they left their sociologist there with a team to build the planet into a human culture. Wait, wait a moment. We, were we going to continue to violate the Prime Directive? Yep. Dang it. <laughs> Kirk gets a report from the sociologist who says there are now domestic disputes and two fights. It's not perfect, but it's human. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Spock muses about how often humanity has longed for a peaceful world like that one. And Kirk says, yeah, but we never got it. Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> Laugh track. <That's> so... <laughs> the end. Good God. Yep. <laughs> this is uh, a bit goofy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think before we go, go much further, I think I'm going to have to draw... Some a very kind of obvious uh, parallel to, to another bit of science fiction. So, yes. so you got a, a society that's run by this sophisticated computer system, right? Yeah, where everyone's kept in a uh, a state of of uh, you know uh, you know maybe not like you know totally engaged uh, you know experience, but a a, a a generally happy one. Where they are all sort of linked together through this you know, common bond of this computer system, right? Yep. And there's these 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 lawgiver these these agents they're going around and uh, trying to keep the peace whenever the random, very unlikely to possibly ever happen sort of uh, rogue elements appear, and uh, they have these sort of seemingly magical powers, right? Ah, so you're thinking of the Planet Amazonia women in Futurama, right? Uh, well, a little bit, but I was actually thinking about the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I referenced Mr. Anderson earlier. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of a parallel, and you know, even when they uh they're uh, sort of you know leaving the house there, uh, and everyone suddenly turns into an enemy, it's just like the Matrix, where anyone could be an agent. Oh no! Yeah, the, the so the main the main uh, structural difference that you would hit is that while the matrix is based off of self-realization as the ability to change your culture, this one mm -hmm. relies on external agents. Well, I, they, they were trying to have some sort of internal uh, resistance, but it just wasn't working at all. Well, they apparently never tried to do anything. Yes. <laughs> it's more, it was more like a social club, really. Yeah, because having... They, they demonstrate that any sort of direct resistance is so confusing that it just like shuts down the system for a little while. So obviously the resistance has never tried resisting. 
you know, maybe they just don't know that that's an option. Yeah. Maybe just sort of a general, we resent the situation, but we don't know what to do about it. Hmm, you would sort of think they might have tried it once. <laughs> maybe they're just not very creative people. So, like, here's the here's the issue that I hit with trying to, to figure out the, the, the critique of this episode. There are three or four themes that this is trying to do something with but mm-hmm. they're very segmented and none of them is actually explored in any kind of detail yes. <laughs> you, like, well we have this this festival thing you know sort of controlled violence is an outlet i guess but they don't really go into anything about that other yeah, than it's just it, a thing it happens once and they never even mention it again yep <laughs> there's definitely a a anti-communist propaganda layer happening here with the yeah. the overarching control of the state turning the citizens into cogs in a machine with no individuality or autonomy mm-hmm. which was a big kind of cold war fear at the time this was made uh but the weird th- like so it's it kind of starts as like a critique of fascism with everyone being being controlled by this one overarching entity and anyone who even you know passively resists like making a joke about it is summarily executed a little harsh but that's kind of fascism for you yeah but but later when kirk figures out that it's run by a computer his only actual critique of the system is that it's run by a computer yeah, it's like, oh, we're just going to go the uh, old uh, computers are evil standby. I get it. Yeah, which Did, we, we just do this. We never get enough information about what the original Landrew guy did. Mm-hmm. If he somehow created exactly this situation, then this would be like a critique of his ideals being carried out for all eternity. But we never know. It's implied that the only thing that's wrong with the situation is that a computer is doing it. So we don't know if it's a critique of, you know, what the, the was the computer taking something that he did and misinterpreting it into this like fascist mind control state? Was yeah, this be... the state of things before and the computer is just continuing it on? Because that, like, if all for all Kirk knows in this episode, this has been the state of affairs that Landrew wanted. Yeah. So his only actual critique is that it's being carried out by a computer and not a flesh and blood person. Which is a little ridiculous, because if this was actually the case, this was, you know, Landrew's original dream, Landrew was kind of a dick. Yes, very much so. You know, the, the alternative is that he had a completely different plan originally that was just sort of, you know, hinted at something like this as in parts, but the computer sort of took it over and has maybe even like evolved it towards this as a, uh, a steady state, this, you know, p- uh, preservation of the body. And, you know, the logical conclusion is that, oh, we have to have everything behave exactly this way to keep things exactly the same forever. Yeah, which could, like, if they had actually expanded on that. Mm-hmm. That would be a very, very valid critique of Marxism as interpreted by Lenin and Stalin to create the Soviet Union. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're going to take your ideas and then we're going to basically chop out the bits that are inconvenient for us preserving power. Yeah. Because this, like, I was doing a little reading and this 
would have been a fairly valid critique of Stalinism yeah. with the man with the like hatred of individuality and children being raised by the state and the disillusionment of religions. Uh, but since they did very little with it, it's just some random boilerplate anti-communists 50s, 60s propagandizing. Yeah. <laughs> Which in some ways makes it seem kind of quaint, but it's still sort of when you know when you think about it, it's like this, this doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> yeah, doesn't make any sense at all. Like there's they're trying to do kind of a evil AI layer, which we could talk about AI stuff a little bit. I did some reading on that. Uh, th- there's definitely a a probably unintentional colonialist message going in here. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, they've they've had this society that's totally bonkers, and we need to save them, and we need to, uh, you know, install this much more human culture, and that's has to be the only way for them to survive because obviously this crazy computer system is not going to work, right? Yeah, in in less than forty eight hours, they destroy an entire governmental system, mm-hmm. and decide they need to install theirs. Yep. <laughs> So yeah, oh, we're just gonna have, oh look at that uh, your entire government collapsed. Um, um here I have this one instead. Um, yeah, and this is just this is not only presented as good, but domestic abuse as a outcome of this is just like well there we go everything's normal now. So what you're saying is that you know you know people hating each other is an improvement on the situation. Yes, you're you're not selling your message real well, guys. And again, given given how much domestic abuse there is in Star Trek so far, uh, yeah, it seems very core to their government. Apparently, yeah. oh uh, man, do you want to talk about the Chinese room? I'm completely sp- spaced on that. Um, <laughs> what, what, which bit was that? <laughs> so this was a uh, John uh, John Serrell has this kind of idea that's that's kind of a antithesis to what we've talked about before with the um with the turing test ah the turing test which we've talked about a bit previously is if you can interact with a computer and not realize that you are interacting with a computer you have basically created a true ai because the 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 simulation of the interaction being so perfect is basically the thing itself. So, uh, you know, the, you know, you go from Eliza to Eliza point, you know, 3.0. And then you're like, Oh, this is like a real person. I'm, I'm, I'm just crazy. Yeah. The Chinese room idea says if you, if you like have a closed room and you put a slip of paper in it that has a question written in Chinese, and mm-hmm. what comes out is an answer also written in Chinese. The, there must be a person inside the room who speaks Chinese and is answering your question. <laughs> it stands to reason. But what's actually happening is there is a person inside the room who does not speak Chinese, but has a very carefully written rule book for what characters to write down in response to other characters. Oh, so uh, a, a cipher of a sorts. Yeah. So the argument goes that this person can sit in this room forever doing this, following this set of instructions, but they will never be able to understand Chinese. 
And I guess to a certain extent, you could be argued that at some level they might be able to pattern recognition their way into it, but they wouldn't be able to like speak it or anything. Well, like this that. is the thing: they might not, they wouldn't be able to because they are completely divorced from context. Mm, true, true, true. Says the the kind of uh, counter argument to this is if this person memorized this rule book and then you put them in a real world situation, like working at a Chinese restaurant they would begin to start to recognize the words from the context of what they were implied that they meant were meant to do. Mm -hmm. But completely divorced from external stimulus, just having this direct, like, I am receiving this input and I need to give this output, you are circumventing anything that would be the consciousness. And therefore, the simulation can never be considered a true AI conscious entity. So in other words, it doesn't matter if the person who's following the rule book is a computer or an actual person. Yeah. And in the context of this analogy, the, the complex set of rules would just be whatever program the computer happens to be running, and the person would be the processor. Yeah, it makes sense. And you can get into that kind of argument with this because uh, you have this Landru computer that is interacting and it's, it's really impossible for us to tell whether it's a true AI or not. And the way that Kirk interacts with it is implied that it's like this cold, heartless machine. The, the kind of interesting thing is that they don't seem to care whether it's conscious. So uh, no AI rights in this particular future. Okay, got it. <laughs> because the thing is like dying and it realizes that it is about to be destroyed and it starts asking its creator for help. Yeah, it's a distress. Um, maybe you could, like, I don't know, reassure it. And it's like, okay, well, we'll help you, but you need to have some changes around here. But see, they don't They don't actually go into anything. The minute they realize it's a computer, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is something to be destroyed. Um, oh, our faces don't work anymore. Um, we'll talk it to death, yes. <laughs> yeah, which there's, there's, like, two things in there. One... Like, this is your general 50s, 60s, the machines are taking over industrialization, automation, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, also, it's this weird computers are badly made idea. <laughs> they they always have this weird thing in this style of science fiction and this way of talking about the computers that the second you give it any kind of logical contradiction at all even the vague suggestion of one it's going to explode it's a uh, a trope that shows up in uh, other science fiction parallel to this but it is seems to be a favorite of star trek for a certain degree here yeah um, and it is kind of this you know people didn't have a very good idea of how computers functioned at this time there were these big complicated machines that took very specialized training to run and they were huge they were the size of warehouses and they took just miles and miles and miles of magnetic tape to program yeah, you know some of them got punch cards and other ones got these tubes that keep breaking and everyone's just going crazy and then one has a magical switch that has you know two options magic and more magic and uh, it only has one wire connecting to something that doesn't even make sense. But if you flip the switch, it actually breaks down. And it's weird. Yeah. This. Uh, I don't know. I I'm struggling to wrap my head around this particular concept, and I recognize that's just my perspective coming from a very very computer based society. But 
I suppose the automation fear makes a certain amount of sense in this, that like you're automating away even your leadership and it's going to do like dumb things. Well, you know, it's a, maybe it's a, a, a good, you know, implication for a, you know, you know, the democracy itself. I, I'm always a big fan of democracy and, uh, you know, having a computer that's immortal and who answers to no one other than this base, you know, you know core program, you know, it, it means that your leadership is not uh, able to be, you know, sufficiently questioned by your populace. And thus it does not have a check when it starts to break down or do something that's completely ridiculous. And uh, it, because this whole system is built with this illusion that it's not a computer, it's some all-powerful being out there, it sort of extra, you know, puts extra layers in, you know, in the way to... Uh, uh, sort of protect itself like that and uh, that's just sort of a, a you know several layers deep of you know i i don't want to be held responsible for my actions yeah though we we never really we we can make the intuitive assumption that what is happening in the society is amoral but we don't actually get enough information to examine the fact mm -hmm. there's certainly a suggestion of the breakdown of individual freedoms, which we consider a very kind of sacred right in America. Yes. So the just the even the vague suggestion of this could be seen as like like this is definitely an immoral action for this machine to be like the you know, mind controlling people. Even yeah. though um at the time of this episode, the American government was experimenting with mind controlling its own population through uh, LSD <laughs> trials. Hmm. Wait, did somebody on the on the on the set there know something about what the experiments were going on with? Probably not. Oh but it's just it was just kind of interesting to me that this was the same time period. Yes. <laughs> well, well, maybe. Maybe it was just sort of, you know, someone, you know, watched this episode and was like, wait a moment, maybe we should be doing this. <laughs> Let's see. So this gets into, um, the, the, there's definitely some anti-spiritualist undertones happening here. So anti-tech and anti-spiritualism. Oh my. Yeah. Well, I believe that it's, it's so it's a communist fear critique, but it's, it's very rooted in the imagery of 60s and 70s counterculture. Which I know the '70s haven't happened yet at this point, but it carried through. So new trends. It, just think about the way the the main distinction that you have. You see two. You see two things that the people who are you know part of the body controlled by Landrew are doing. One is being very blissed out and calm and overly friendly, mm -hmm. which is very associated with the kind of hippie free love. Uh, drugged out on the universe idea that was popularized yeah. around this time to delegitimize the counterculture liberal movement that was happening among young students. Yeah, sort of, you know, an implication that this person's unserious. They're, you know, completely distracted and they're not connected with the world anymore. And thus, you really shouldn't pay attention, any attention to what they're trying to say, right? Yeah, which was actually very, very connected with anti-communist, anti-Marxist ideas because a lot of countercultural stuff during the 60s was particularly inspired by Marxist ideologies. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an entire kind of conspiracy theory going on with the Frankfurt School, which was a group of intellectuals who fled Germany during World War II um, that kind of got mixed up in this idea that they were like planting Marxist ideas in, in young people in universities 
and they mixed this in with a fear of kind of drug culture of the time because you know the the people who were on drugs were being influenced into this incorrect non-capitalist modality so so the implication being that you know the drugs themselves are making them more you know uh, you know able to be manipulated and thus this blissed out uh, state of mind means they're susceptible to the evils of communism yeah. oh no and it's not just because they've done their reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I don't want to get too deep into it. I should mention out of completeness that there's definitely a very large anti-Semitic statement going on with that because these were groups of intellectuals that were forced out of Germany because of Nazi ideologies. Yes. Um, but the, the specific stuff that they're doing in this episode, while it, anything connected with that is going to have some anti-semitic undertones uh this particular one is seems more concerned with the um the kind of spiritualist um connectivity there's there's like a certain there's a certain set of spiritualist thinking that's fairly pervasive it actually i was actually just in at a conference that was talking a lot about this from a uh, psychological and therapeutic standpoint you're sort of talking about this uh, this one mind sort of uh, you know notion here. A little, but it's it's not exactly one mind. Like they they take it to a they take it to a kind of absurdist extreme to make their argument in this episode. But the kind of one universe, one connected energy that people like f people have described this as reaching this state in meditations and uh, and other things and it's it's very commonly described in certain kinds of hallucinogenic drug trips where the the separation between your internal self and the external world breaks down basically your your perception and sense of awareness expands to the point that you no longer feel as a distinct entity separate from the rest of the universe so you become a continuity as opposed to a singular discrete packet. Yes, though personally I don't prescribe to the idea that any one of us is a singular entity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a multiplicity idea. Yeah, uh, you know, I, thinking about this uh, does remind me of a um, an, an argument I uh, made uh, sort of mostly in jest uh, many years ago uh, about, you know, the uh, quantum mechanics and the functions of the of the brain like the actual like physical mechanisms that are going on that you know you know in quantum theory there is a you know, sort of the, you got the wave notion of particles right yes and so that means that your various particles in you know any system are not necessarily going to be fully localized uh, to a single location unless they're being interacted with and are and their wave functions collapsing so conceivably you could argue that you know as you know, if you are in a, a pos position where you're not being actively you know observed you are uh, in some ways way beyond your you know what's you'd normally assume to be your physical body and things like that and that's all you know that goes for your you know, the components of your brain, all that sort of, you know, mechanisms, you know, electrical impulses, you know, everything is just, is, is extended beyond that. So it's sort of a, a, a sort of a, you know, that breakdown of, uh, you know, uh, you know, isolation, except in a very quantum mechanical sense. <laughs> Interestingly, that's actually one of the ways that it was metaphorically described at this conference I was at. 
Oh, sweet. I, I'm like, I want to something. <laughs> they, I, I forget the exact wording right now, but they kept t- they were talking about this idea of kind of disconnecting your conscious awareness and connecting with this sort of quantum plane as more more of a metaphor than a direct, you know, physics, like, you know, reality. But yeah, the, yeah. the trouble is when you're when you're trying to not ice, you know, interact with something so you don't have your wave function collapse, your body is going to be interact with itself a lot. So it's really tricky. <laughs> That's true, though. You don't you don't have to do it. You're like your you know, inner continuity of awareness has to do it. Yes. But this this is a very common idea in many spiritual traditions like the, uh, there are quite a few. Uh, Eastern traditions that still practice this idea, a lot of more modern, what we might consider kind of new age philosophies deal with this idea of the connectivity. And it was very, very demonized during the 60s and 70s because it was hugely connected with the countercultural movement, which was Mm -hmm. under attack from mainstream government at the time to kind of hold up their their, uh, 50s power structures. Yes, and uh, apparently also by Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> yes, and uh, well, a lot of this communist paranoia, anti-communist sentiment, and co- anti-Marxist ideas, while it was being fueled by what was happening in the Soviet Union under Stalin, which was horrific. Like, Stalin was a horrible fascist dictator. He was generally considered a bad guy. Yeah, but the general Marxist ideas that were beginning to be accepted among the countercultural movement in the United States were not based in Stalin or Leninist ideas. They were just looking at Marxism as a critique of modern capitalism. And Mm -hmm. that was seen as dangerous to the establishment. And so a lot of the ideas associated with that, especially the drug culture and the spirituality, were highly uh fought against so if you actually look at this episode thinking about it as kind of this this mind control idea this like connected one entity idea seems to be this kind of absurdist extreme of a more grounded spiritual tradition that's existed for a very very long time and keeps keeps reoccurring even times when it's been suppressed it always seems to come up again throughout human history which suggests that there is some sort of you know innate experience that this is definitely speaking to and the Mm -hmm. fact that it's being uh it's being pitted against the idea of personal freedom especially even this idea that that conflict in and of itself is a sign of a healthy society now conflict implies competition competition is what capitalism is about and that's what we need right yeah this, this idea that friendliness and cooperation are inherently off-putting to the extent that they can be a byword for immorality. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that we see, they don't go into it very much, but the kind of festival thing, the only two things that we see them do are some minor vandalism and a lot of what's implied to be uh, the precursors to sex, yes. which again, free love and some minor, you know, social vandalism, some like countercultural protesting and things of that nature yeah. were also <laughs> very connected with the counterculture at the time. 
It's like, oh, you know, and you, if you're not paying attention, these these dang hippies are going to have a march and they're going to break some stuff and you're going to set your trash can on fire and then they're going to have sex in the street next door next to it because it's warm. Yeah. And that's just the end of society. Oh, God. And I'm definitely <laughs> not danger. trying to make some sort of argument for a mind control dictatorial state, but it is very interesting to me that the way that they demonstrate that this is an immoral state of being is the fact that everyone seems very happy and blissed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I, I don't know, I did not expect to go into a full-on critique of 60s uh, <laughs> capitalist power structures, so... Well, to a certain degree, you, you kind of hit up uh, some of the stuff I was looking to talk about, too. So I, I think that really works. Like, oh, well, I'm just going to let you do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, this did get me thinking a little bit about, um, you know, the notion of systems as, uh, you know, like governments as a system. And, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of comparisons between, you know, uh, you know, the, you know the, the system of a government in this world and a body. And it's very, very directly sort of referenced there that the... You know, the Landrew is like the head and the various people in it are various, you know, you know, sociological, biological functions in that body. Yeah. Uh, and so it's sort of like, well, this is all trying to be an interacting system. And then, you, you know, you know, then, you know, you, know, you go into the talk about, oh, this is a uh, sort of a, a vision of a fascist state of some sort. Uh, and, uh, but this sort of idea that, you know, it just sort of that there's analogies going on you know, between a body and a government or any sort of, you know, highly complex interacting system, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what your your base system, you know, you know, is if it's, you know, you know, democracy, fascism, whatever, that there is going to be some sort of, you know, you know, series of interactions and having a interesting way to sort of, a, you know, have an analogy going on there is actually kind of, you know, you know curious and interesting. Uh, and it's, you know, I thought, thought it was kind of, you know, uh, a little bit of, uh, not, I'm trying not to say the word fun, but fascinating, I guess, <laughs> uh, that uh, sort of, you know, made this uh, sort of a, uh, a direct reference to that sort of thing here. It's a very Star Trek word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's kind of interesting that it's presented, and I even saw some interviews that were talking about this episode as a a reaction to, you know, communist fears because it's aside from some propaganda stuff like we were talking about it's basically a critique of any governmental system yeah because they are prioritizing the idea of full personal autonomy as the ultimate goal which any kind of interconnected system any society at all including like a family you know, you know even like yeah. the smallest unit you can have is going to have natural limits on personal freedom indeed it's it's part of that whole uh you know give and take thing where you you know my freedoms uh, extend only certain so so far because if they go beyond this they're going to be you know intervening on yours and then you are losing freedom accordingly and so you know to have you know so you have a government system put in place to sort of regulate that interaction and uh you know and th therefore you don't have infinite freedom all the time yeah with the even with the body idea so i kind of i was trying to do some research on the the idea of like uh you know the the society versus the individual in a philosophical context and i didn't find as much on that as i wanted but i did stumble on this very interesting thing of hegel's master and slave dialectic can't say i'm familiar with that one either 
you're pulling you're pulling some cool ones out of me <laughs> it's fairly interesting for this episode Ex- I hesitated to talk about it until you brought up the body analogy because if you look at this episode uh, using this dialectic as a metaphor, you get into some problems when you factor in the fact that they have such a colonialist message. But the the basic idea is Hegel was kind of standing as a counterpoint to um, the, the think therefore I am Descartian philosophy. So Descartes' idea was all about, you know that your consciousness exists because you are in there and you are thinking about it. Therefore, it must be the de facto point where you can start from as like, this is existence. Uh, Hegel had this idea that a consciousness could only define its own existence as far as it was being observed by another consciousness. I think I, I think you lose me old Hegel, but oh, keep going. <laughs> All right, yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit like the quantum thing you were just talking about. Yes. Something can only exist as far as it's observed. Mm-hmm. So a consciousness encounters another consciousness, and it is being observed by that consciousness, therefore proving its own existence. But another consciousness is not an entity that this consciousness can control and it is therefore dangerous so the natural instinct of the consciousness is to destroy the other but if it destroys the other it can no longer prove its own existence so you don't have anything about uh, you know well i already proved my existence but now i i, I don't need that proof anymore so i'm going to destroy you and uh, going to preserve, preserve my former proof because you know no. <laughs> Yeah, the future. Yeah, maybe that all that was a demon or something like that. My past is all, uh, you know, fool's errand. What he winds up me. with, and why this is called the master and slave dialectic, is that one of these consciousnesses will inevitably come to dominate the other. Hmm. So one becomes the master consciousness, and one becomes the slave consciousness. Sort of uh, building a hierarchy, but you're trying to use philosophy to suggest that it's inevitable yeah and then you you kind of come out of this with some other things uh there were there are a bunch of critiques of this dialectic and the one that i was kind of struck by in reference to this like you have this this very dominant kind of master consciousness in the landrew computer mm-hmm. that is dominating all other consciousnesses on this planet be- in order to maintain its safety and control yeah, very directly do. And so when it when it's challenged by having entities there that are not under its direct control, it tries to dominate them. Yeah, it's uh tries tries to integrate in the system, and uh, once that seems to be failing, well, I guess we ought to destroy you because that's the only other option available to. Yeah, me. and I found this kind of interesting just from some critiques that were were written about this idea that once you have a a group or individual like once you have this master consciousness that defines its own existence by the domination of others another entity that exists non-dominated is inherently threatening like they don't have to do anything except exist as another entity that is not dominated by this consciousness to be a threat i guess that is makes sense if you're going to assume it's going to be necessarily be a threat well see it's not nece- like they aren't necessarily going to become a threat but so much of your own identity and sense of 
self and worth has been put in to dominating others now, the fact that someone exists that is not dominating is now a threat to that identity because you know you've started to find yourself in this dynamic and therefore you know this thing that's not dominated is going to you know try to dominate you yeah that's kind of the end point of this hegel dialectic is that the the enslaved consciousness class is always going to eventually rise up and overtake the master but, uh, does that mean they're just going to replace the master with a new one uh possibly it doesn't get that far also you have some some very direct critiques of this where like hegel was a massive racist so yeah. <laughs> he didn't consider this as a actual like ideology and he always made the assumption that the two starting entities would be on equal footing to begin with but in practice that doesn't usually happen very often. Someone, you know, like someone's like, well, I'm going to come up to this country and I have these firearms and they don't got firearms. Well, I guess I'm in charge now. Yeah, which is which is why I like I think it fit in with your bot with the interest that's thing that you had with the system and the body analogy. But I hesitated to talk about it because it definitely has some very troubling implications once you mix in the kind of colonialist thing that they are doing in this episode with the crew coming in and just taking over and replacing the system with one that they deem fit yes you know i guess going uh you know back to the uh, the baldy analogy you know in in some ways uh landry's trying to be an immune system it just it's <laughs> and and you know, go you know, get to the climax of the episode where Kirk's arguing that you are, uh, you know, damaging the body. It's almost like he's implying you are engaging in an autoimmune overreaction here. So uh, you stop it, and it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to have no immune system then. Yeah, I would have, I would have <laughs> just liked them to demonstrate the damage. Yes, they they definitely make an implication. If these people really are just completely controlled and enslaved and dominated, then there is like an inherent immorality to that action. But they never actually explain it beyond having that one festival thing that they don't go into. And yeah, why did they have festival? What's the point of it? Yeah, why did they have festival? Everyone at the time, when we see the festival, everyone seems to be enjoying themselves immensely. And, and they're, then they're all giggly and yeah, whoa, I'm gonna throw things. Ah. Yeah, and then afterward you get the you get the daughter crying in the hallway for mm -hmm. yeah, she looks like she's she's like in a ripped dress, she looks a little bruised up, and you have this like, yeah, something bad looks like it happened, but the last time we saw her, she was having a grand old time. Yeah. So what's going on? Maybe Landry's control flips a weird way out this particular time, and uh, you know everyone gets suddenly so much joy from being kind of terrible. <laughs> yeah, I just it's see this is the struggle. Like we got to some interesting things with it, but nothing in this episode is written well enough to hold together, and it's yeah. not. It doesn't go into any of its themes at all it doesn't explain anything to us in any kind of way it's not like a show don't tell scenario it's a show anything please like i would settle for telling you could have a big speech at the end that explained all of this and i would have been much happier yeah, it's like oh uh, and we need the exposition to tie it all together and now everything makes sense yeah Great. that that would have been way better than what they did yes. <laughs> 
I, I will say that I was kind of amused by the uh, the, the the window scene uh, while at the house, where it's like, okay, you, you know, you open the window and it's just darkness out there, not like a town, just blackness. Okay. <laughs> yep. Fine. They didn't turn on any lights. <laughs> not even like you know, like some hint that there's like a world out there. Just sort of you look out the window and you pretend you're looking at something, Kirk. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess they just couldn't afford that set. Well, we've waffled on for quite a while and gotten to some interesting places, but it's finally time for the galaxy's favorite game show. So on the Galaxy's favorite game show, we got some awards to hand out to people who have done amazing things. Maybe. We'll find out in just a moment. Gepin, I hope you're prepared for this. Oh, yes. You got it. I have a healthy boatload of prizes for our wonderful contestants. Ooh, oh, yes. It's good you got those because we got, got some, some really important contestants here. So first off is the Marks or Bus Revolutionary Award. It goes to Rhaegar. What's he win? Rhaegar wins a frickin' spine. Oh. He doesn't do anything, and he starts crying the minute the revolution works. And I'm sorry, that's just a bad revolutionary. I want to have some sympathy for the guy who's a very bad revolutionary. I think he's more on the bust option here. Ho oh. <laughs> ho. The second award goes to, uh, is the Fake, fake Paradise Prison Award that goes to Landrew, because he has a, a paradise... And it's kind of imprisoning. So it's a little bit of a stretch my usual go on this one, but I think it's appropriate. What does he win, Gepwin? Landrew wins a weird bouncy weather balloon ball. When you want to keep people in a fake paradise prison, you need a big bouncy ball. I've actually been watching a bit of the prisoner recently. Good good callback. <laughs> the uh, third award is the Talking to Death Award, which goes to Kirk for talking Landrew to death. Because he can do that. In fact, he's done that before. What does he win, Gepwin? <laughs> Kirk wins? I don't know, because none of this made any sense, and I can't. I can't with that one. Just, no. That didn't make any sense at all. Maybe uh, Kirk should uh, win a, a, a script editor award that he can pass on to Gene for us. Yeah, yeah. Retroactively. Yeah, hopefully. send it on. <laughs> I think that's all our awards for today. Uh, thank you very much, and congrats to all the winners. You're all super awesome, I think. Congratulations to everyone, and thank you again for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! <laughs> yeah! Woo! Oh, that got to some weird places, but all of it. It's okay. We never have to watch that episode again. Yay! <laughs> the next episode is one of the more famous ones. Yes. Spawned arguably the most famous Star Trek villain. Mm-hmm. And he has quite the voice. Yes, he does have quite the voice. Next week we are going to be looking at Space Seed. Which yes, space. introduces Ricardo Maltaban as Khan Nunian Singh. 
I think this is a fellow who you're going to be seeing more than once here. Yes, at least twice. Uh, depends on if you watch that other show that I'm forgetting now. Paradise something, um, Island something. You know, Paradise Island? Is it Paradise Island? I'm not I think sure. This is Paradise Island. Well, let me check his IMDb here. <laughs> <laughs> he hosted another show around this time period, and it's bugging me now. Well, uh, you know, he was also, I think, in Freakazoid, right? Probably. Yeah. yeah, he was in a lot of stuff. Yeah, Fantasy Island. Uh, that was in the 70s. Okay, hmm. so I guess later he hosted Fantasy Island. That's what okay. a lot of people started <laughs> knowing him for later. So. Oh, he was in the Planet of the Apes. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Neither did I. <laughs> All right, this this is for next time, though. We, we, <laughs> Ricardo Montalban, you just get lost. You get lost in in his eyes. There's just so much much to appreciate about him. Hmm. Well, we're going to be distracted. So join us next week as we look at Space Seed on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. We meet Superman from the 20th century. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>